0: completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my god. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time.
1: It's not obvious that we are professionals. You are not paying attention. We know what we're doing.
0: <laughs> but
1: I'm serious. Can we start already? All right. Welcome to Unbalanced Views, a mostly American history podcast. Uh, originally, I said each week, but this is probably a bi-weekly podcast based on how much uh, time I spent reading and uh, researching and writing for this first uh, multi-part episode. So each week or two, I, Brian Bradyhoff, will read an amazing story to my friend, Mike Ogerinos, who is completely ignorant.
0: Not totally ignorant, just to the story.
1: so so you say
0: just got to keep reminding everybody so
1: so mike what is your sunshine this week buddy
0: sunshine this week is it was a holiday weekend got to sit by the pool got good color good sun relaxed recharge the batteries as the people (laughs) can't see but we can see i put a live picture up of the uh of the scenery there it's great and uh you know all's good how about you
1: me uh i'm not sure if i said this last time but um i have this is a small thing but it's a big deal if that makes sense i uh have been several years now without a grill uh maybe two years i think my grill died uh, just before the pandemic uh, really kicked into high gear and uh i finally bought a new grill i bought a uh, one of those kamado style grills and um not not one of those crazy thousand dollar big green eggs or anything but i bought a yeah. I bought an acorn, and uh, man, I've been grilling out, and um, it's just uh, boy, I really missed it. I had some yeah. uh, some really nice um, Beyond Meat uh, sausages that grilled out that were really wonderful. I, I really like the uh, the Beyond Meat burgers and the uh, the the, the plant based sausages. They're really really good. Um, sure, it's you know it's a nice way to mix it up. I, I used to be a vegetarian for uh, for I guess about a year year and a half, and um, and then Ella was born and. Uh, as she started eating solid food, um, we kind of decided, well, it's it's not really fair to make her kind of, you know, we should give her a variety as she gets a little older, see what she likes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So by the time she was about one or so, we started introducing a little bit of meat back into the diet for her to have a little access. And then uh, next thing you know, my daughter is is like the biggest carnivore in the world. So um, so here we are, uh, basically right back where we were before we we went
0: vegetarian. So what about the yep. Impossible Burger? Yeah, they're good.
1: They're they yeah. they're good. Yeah, the Impossible Whopper is really good. I uh, I do like it. Yeah, um, and I buy I'll buy the the Beyond Meat um, burgers as well to 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 cook. Um, they they're very they're very good. They're yeah they're never very good. tried
0: one. I've they're, Never tried one.
1: The Impossible Burger you uh, the Impossible Whopper. I mean I don't eat a lot of fast food, but um, the Impossible Whopper you can't really even tell. Uh, really yeah I, I think it's pretty much the same i mean um i again i mean the, the the whopper is not like it's not like a really big burger they don't like season it or anything so it's not that like it's a hard thing to you know you could swap something in there favorites. pretty easily well but One i mean my well my point is just you could swap something in fairly easily it's not like sure. um yeah you know sure. i mean it's not something really complicated so i think um yeah the, the impossible whopper is good and the um and the like I said, the Impossible and the Beyond Meat are both very very good products that I've had. So, and I like I said, I, I like them at home. Uh, it's a nice way to sort of mix things in a little bit, and uh, they're better. They're environmentally better.
0: I think the the Impossible Whopper is worse than the actual Whopper as far as health. Benefits. I don't.
1: I don't know uh, if that's fair. I I think it's um, I think the ca- the caloric intake is about the same, but usually the difference is they're they're usually a little bit lower in say saturated fats or in fat. You know, they're a little gotcha. lower in... They're a little lower in in a few categories, a little higher in other categories. The the yeah. calories are usually about even. To yep. me, um, to me the overall benefit is not uh, the health of it. Uh, the overall benefit is that uh, they use uh, significantly less, say, water than than beef requires to produce, and mm-hmm. um, they they use less land. They are just environmentally more sound. They also, you know, don't release a whole bunch of methane into the, the atmosphere. So, you know, they're good all around. Um, they're well, they're better for the going- environment.
0: I am keeping my manliness intact and I'm going to keep eating big manly burgers. Mm. However, 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 I am changing my diet now and I'm going less meat, not totally no meat, not totally vegetarian, but less meat and more and more fish. Yeah. And I went out and I bought wild caught salmon, wild caught some other stuff. So got to figure out the best way to prepare it, but yeah, no, that's best good way to live, live longer, live healthier. eat sure. fish. Sure,
1: Mediterranean diet, right?
0: Oh. Yeah. We're
1: good. A little bit more. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So. Good for you. All right. Well, good. Yep. 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 Okay. Mike. I am going to and have used the phrase middle class many, many times. But when I talk about middle class for the rest of the story, I, I want you to, to understand what I mean. When I say middle class today in 2022, uh, most people think middle class has something to do with economic status. But that is a really sure. new idea. That's not, uh, That's not historically what middle class means. For our story, because we're talking about a time when the middle class is sort of being born, I will mean specifically- the kind of merchant capitalists who have either direct or indirect control over the labor of other people. Gotcha. Okay. So when I talk about the working class, I mean, people whose labor is controlled by others. Mm -hmm. Okay. sort of. that's part of what our story is about is that for many people in the kind of what we would now call the working class, they called themselves like mechanics back then because they worked with their hands. You know, most of them controlled their own labor. They had workshops and things like that. Okay. So with that all said, Let's return to our story. Uh, When we last left off, it was May 5th, 1832. Robert Matthews, now calling himself the prophet Matthias, arrived at the door of a house on 4th Street looking for another prophet named Elijah the Tishbite. Now, Elijah obviously took his name from the biblical prophet. But his, he was born Elijah Pearson in Morristown, New Jersey in 1786. So he's about two years older than Robert, uh, than Robert Matthews. Pearson's great-great-great-grandfather was a Puritan minister named Abraham Pearson. And he led a group of dissidents to Brantford, Connecticut in 1647, then in 1666 to Newark, New Jersey. There, he helped create what one historian called the Last Puritan Theocracy, in the 1720s, Abraham's grandson Benjamin cleared and settled land near Morristown, New Jersey. And in 1786, Elijah Pearson was born on the 178-acre farm that Benjamin had cleared. So this is so this is a guy growing up in a, a, a very uh, family-oriented environment. He's growing up in a community where his great uncles and great aunts and uncles and aunts and you know it's and cousins are going to be everywhere, obviously because they've they've been there for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Elijah grew up in a prosperous community with lots of kin. Uh, He attended a Presbyterian church where his family had been founding members. His father and uncle were even trustees at the church. The Pearsons rented a pew near the front of the church, but they were behind the wealthiest members, the pastor's family, and a few seats that were set aside for hearing impaired. His uncle Silas, uh, who had been a delegate actually in the Continental Congress, sat in front so, I mean, this is a connected guy, right? Yeah. Um, the church was full of you know familial faces, even in the back, where the poorest uh, paid no rent at all. Elijah grew up learning that God put people into families and social ranks and then basically governed their destinies according to some inscrutable plan. Elijah's father, Benjamin, was the model of patriarchal authority. He's the head of household, uh, worked the farm as the sovereign over his wife, his two daughters, five sons, and one enslaved man. As a church trustee, Benjamin's patriarchal authority extended into the community right? Trustees would chastise members of the community for doing things like taking too much opium or firing musket balls through the steeple or allowing pigs to root on church property. Trustees also collected firewood for widows, and they took up collections for the poor. And in so doing, women, slaves, and propertyless men were all subordinated into this patriarchy. But at the same time, people expressed a certain mutual care and obligation, right? propertyless men could retain their dignity and women could stay warm in winter as long as they submitted to the proper patriarchal authority. Elijah left his kin behind and he moved to Manhattan to apprentice as a clerk. So, in 1820, Pearson was now 34, and he and a guy named John Steinbrenner opened a a mercantile firm on Pearl Street where they were specialists. They capitalized on the changes of the market revolution, um, particularly in agricultural products, and the demand for the finished goods in, like, these upstate towns. So. They were wholesalers. They bought imported goods at auction. They split them into smaller lots. They resold them to country shopkeepers, right? Mm-hmm. They were part of this new breed of businessman. We actually saw looked at this from the other side where Robert Matthews would like take trips into New in Manhattan in order to buy things when he had his shop. Right. So by this time, most of the real estate the, the wharves, the shipping, that was already owned by New York's old elite families. But the Pearl Street merchants were a new kind of self-conscious middle class, right? Men like Elijah, who they operate in this new middle space, they didn't have inherited wealth or inherited farmland. So instead, they had to be driven by individual ambition, the accumulation of money and risk taking, um, all kind of new ideas. Marrying early, having large families, and uh, the aspirations to a patriarchal kind of existence wouldn't have made very much sense to them. Uh, It would have actually doomed his career, right? So Mm -hmm. by his mid-30s, Elijah Pearson was financially successful, but he was all alone. So the elites in the city did things like drank wine, wore fine clothes, and courted women with fashionable tastes and expenses. Many of them kept mistresses, and most did not attend church. But the ones who did would normally attend, like, these grandiose and elegant, uh, elegant Episcopalian or Dutch Reformed churches that Elijah looked at. He saw them as social clubs for the rich rather than houses of worship. Um, right. So the, we're talking about the, the elites are like men and women with no real fear of God's judgment. Rather, uh, if they thought of God at all, they saw him basically the way they viewed themselves. A bunch of, like, they see themselves as jolly, kindly gentlemen. <laughs> you know? So they see God kind of the same way. Sure. On the other hand, the city was teeming with uh, the kind of wretched poor, right? Living in abject poverty, uh, you would find brutal men with whiskey bottles, dirty faced children running around as if they were homeless, and then gaudily dressed girls who smiled suggestively at men. It was uh, an unclean mass of misery and despair living kind of beyond the reach of Christian influence. And Elijah knew that these people needed more than just firewood or a seat in the church gallery, right? <laughs> the middle class he occupied was kind of between the careless rich and the vicious poor. And mm-hmm. most importantly, the people in his middle class, they recognized that they were in this this sort of middle space, right? This middle social space. Right. Okay. Because uh, it was new. So they were trying to figure out what it meant. So Elijah joined the Brick Presbyterian Church, where this Reverend Gardner Spring was uh, had sort of turned the church into a center for evangelical missionary societies. Um, they all began as kind of male missions, which is not surprising, but they were very quickly replaced by female missionary uh, groups. And they would go into New York slums appalled to find one preacher reported, quote, the laboring classes were drowning in a sea of Sabbath-breaking, laziness, promiscuity, drunkenness, and utter ignorance of the Christian religion, unquote. Hell yeah, Now, uh, you know, this isn't like the first time charity has ever existed, obviously, right? Um, the elite charities that had been kind of around for a long time, they'd all, the, the people in those uh, elite charities had all seen the same things, but they interpreted uh, poverty as the natural order of things, right? And They just basically thought nothing could really be done about it other than police actions or noblesse oblige like uh, the so something changes because of the trade disruptions from the War of 1812 and the Napoleonic Wars. And of course, the war without summer, uh, which led to an explosive growth in poverty in New York. And so for evangelicals, the causes and solutions to these problems were very clear. Poverty and disorder were not caused by original sin or by God's inscrutable will or even by the market revolution. Poverty and disorder, the suffering of the poor, was the result of failed families, bad moral choices, uh, yes. or and as one missionary put it, the suffering of the poor were the immediate effect of ignorance and vice.
0: I love so, those guys. This guy knows it.
1: Yeah. So the poor, are poor, the poor are poor because they make bad choices.
0: Correct. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very, very huge part of the reason. I know that what a you're saying. People are poor.
1: Yeah. Well, so here's the thing. <clears throat> According to them, the poor did not need better wages, schools or services. They didn't need handouts because they're just going to make bad moral choices. No. Correct. What the poor needed was prayer, not housing. Yes. They needed prayer, not housing. They <laughs> not needed
0: housing. Not, they, not clean water. <laughs> they needed right.
1: They needed moral instruction, not affordable food. Not affordable food. They needed godly friends, not schools. The men who drank were lazy. They avoided work. <laughs> And they brutalized their families because they were like children that needed instruction. So I have to editorialize for a second because
0: uh-huh.
1: I hate these people so much. I can't even <laughs> stand it. They are so utterly condescending. This way of, of thinking is just of, I just can't stand it. It's the, well, if you give something, some people something for free, they won't have any incentive to work, which of course is absolute garbage. I mean, um, we... We certainly have given billionaires lots and lots of stuff for free, and we don't worry about whether they have incentive to work. Anyway, it's just so I mean, I, condescending. I, I,
0: I think a lot of what they, what that person just said is very true.
1: I know you do, but you're wrong. Because here's the thing.
0: <laughs> I just do. It's just...
1: I, I know. I've seen a, it.
0: I know because I've seen it happen. And it's always brought up, especially when you're talking about giving out uh, money in any kind of way, shape, or form to help economically or whatever. If you look at why people are in certain conditions and situations—it's typically a couple, or one, or a few bad decisions that they make.
1: And so, if you make a bad decision, decision, you should be forced to suffer for the rest of your life. So, no, no one
0: said that. No one said that. <laughs> well, here's here's, 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 said here's that's why they that's why they're there. I'm just I'm not saying no one I, I force them to here, suffer, but
1: here is one of the things that I, that bothers me about this line of argument. It is aside from just the condescension. Let's even take the argument at face value value. Let's assume it's true that people, if you give somebody, if you gives people something for free, they'll have no incentive to work. Right. So even if that's true, so what, like, I don't if we know believe, about that point. well, hold on. But if we believe that we should not just allow people to die, right. That the whole point of government is to protect our basic needs. Then who cares if someone doesn't want to work some, some bullshit job. I mean, honestly, like, if preventing people from dying by ensuring that they have their needs met is is a um, universally good thing, then it's a good thing no matter what, right? So I think this is the problem, is that I think most of us say, yes, I think it's a good thing to prevent people from starving to death or dying because they don't have shelter or water or clothing. Like We should, as a society, make sure everybody has those things. And everybody agrees with that. But then it becomes a problem when somebody's like, well, but if we give them those things, then they won't want to work. And to me, I'm like, we shouldn't even know. have the second part of the argument shouldn't even come in because if a thing is a good thing to do, then it's a good thing to do.
0: Yeah. But I don't know if I've ever heard that argument for that specific situation. Like no one's saying if you give homeless people a home, they're not going to work. Or no. Well, cares. it is. I, I mean, that's what I means. Mean, it, that's what I means testing and,
1: and sort it, of the morality it, scolding always is
0: in this in this particular argument say yeah but this is
1: this is the whole like this is the whole you're poor because you you bought a a avocado toast or whatever and you know start making coffee at home don't don't get a cappuccino every day or whatever but again it's the same thing it's the same condescension here's a person who like they've got a they've got a couple of steaks and they're paying with their um, food stamps or whatever Mm -hmm. for these like you know nice steaks and it's like Okay, so that upsets you because you're like, I can't afford nice steaks. But I say, yeah, but you don't know. For all you know, they're buying nice steaks because it's their birthday. So they're going to sacrifice the whole rest of the month in order to have this one special meal for this one special day. So you don't know, like- you know, I mean, it's it's like the it's it's not as if they're going to get more money when it runs out. You know what I mean? Like you've got
0: no, no. You know I, what I mean? And what it's like, saying. yeah, I, I get what you're saying, <laughs> but but here's the thing: this is time and time again, and I was in this boat too at, at one point in my life. I, I I was guilty as sin of this. I've seen example after example after example. It, it, when when people that don't have money, typically when they get money, come into money, they mismanage it immediately.
1: No, you're going to put they, it in. You're going to put it into the economy to buy the things that you've denied yourself. Never for, been forever. able to do. Yeah, of right. course. Of course. And
0: I, I I was in that same exact boat. So I know exactly the scenario. Like you're broke for so long and you're like, you go without and you see things you're like, yeah, I just wish I could have. It. I wish I had. And then finally you have money and it's like, psh, I'm, I'm doing something for me. I'm going to do, I'm going to take that vacation I couldn't take. I'm going to finally get the car out. You know, I'm going to get rid of this crappy car and get a nice sure, car. Sure, sure. And, and all those things are, are, are not the best decisions. And that's, in a nutshell, what happens a lot of times with poor people. And just to say poor people, I'm not saying that in a derogatory way or, you know, people that struggle, it's just, they just make terrifyingly bad decisions.
1: Well, sure. Because when you don't have needs, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah. I mean, you don't have to worry about your needs. Of course, you're going to have a different attitude. Of course.
0: There's, there's absolute needs. Okay. So if someone comes into money, yeah, you got to put money towards that. No question about it. What I'm talking about isn't the needs. It's the wants. Well, sure, that, sure. That take all that money. It's the want it's, it's the materialistic it's the, stuff.
1: It's the little things that make life worth living, and and also, it's also what our entire society, uh, our entire economy is based on is consumption. So all of the forces of pressure are on people in the the lower. End of the economic spectrum, the pressure is on for them to always spend their money. I mean, there you have social forces pushing you. You you're bombarded with advertisements. You're bombarded with with you know which are which are you know psychologically crafted to uh, sure. to tap it you know to to manipulate you. And so yeah, so every every pressure out there. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget you know after nine eleven, George Bush was like the terrorists will win if we don't go out and shop. Like
0: yeah yeah the pump you know, you know the, yeah. Yeah, he,
1: everybody go out and shop. And it was like, right, I mean, right. if if ever you needed to know what, what's important in our society, there you go. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Right. So right. anyway, uh, all right. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand that there is a, a mindset, no question, but there's a lot of social pressures that uh, are sort of built into that mindset as well. But anyway, anyway, let's, let's, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta press on Mike. We got, we got, we gotta get to the good stuff. This is uh, this is the setup to get to the good stuff um, All right. anyway so one of the evangelical societies that like I'm talking about was called the uh, the female missionary Society and they requested a male elder from Brick church to assist their mission church at Banker Street, which is a, a black slum in New York at the time. Elijah volunteered. The, the FMS would challenge uh, Elijah's entire framework about patriarchal authority and God. The uh, FMS was headqu- was basically a headquarters for like middle class women who conducted home visits uh, among the poor to pray with them. And they relied on these home visits in order to exert their moral authority. We We talked about this last time, this women's sphere of the home. This is a kind of an important thing to understand about this whole movement. Again, I, this is uh, I, it's a little bit into the weeds, but and maybe a little bit hard to understand, but I think it's important. So if, um, if conversion, if you know your conversion to Christianity is ultimately just a matter of personal prayer and your submission to God's will, right? It's a thing that you can do, right? You can affect your own salvation. Then the idea of this, take it to its logical conclusion, is that you, the individual, could ultimately overcome sin slowly, steadily in your life. And if you could overcome sin, it's just about your own personal discipline and submission, right? If you can do that, then you could ultimately, one soul at a time, eliminate sin in all people. So taken to its logical conclusion, you could ultimately eradicate all sin. And if sin can be eliminated, then the entire logic of hierarchies, including government and including family, they all rested on a lie. The lie being that it is corrupt human nature that justifies or necessitates worldly power. But if corrupt human nature can be overcome, then there's no justification for worldly power other than authoritarianism or power for power's sake, right? So this is the this is the underpinning philosophy of the event these this evangelical Christian movement, right? They look and they say, if we can achieve perfection then the power of law, the power of fathers and husbands and social customs and divisions, not only are they unnecessary, but they are an active hindrance or an unjustifiable barrier between God's mercy and individuals. So worldly power was the primary cause of all the disorder in the world. Again, taken to its logical conclusion, that's sort of where they ended up. Does that make sense?
0: Sure, I understand a that. Perfectionist, I understand a perfectionist, a yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got you. I mean, I think it's ridiculous, but I understand.
1: Remember, part of this whole thing is that they're trying to uh, usher in the millennium, right? They think that if they can perfect the world enough, Jesus will come back and reign for a thousand years people were trying to eminentize the eschaton. The eschaton okay. is the second coming. So eminentize as in to, to make imminent. So the so the logic is about perfectionism. Anyway, back to where we were. As the FMS elder, Elijah met Sarah Stanford, a widow and the daughter of a Baptist minister named John Stanford. Elijah and Sarah courted and then married in 1822. And Sarah was kind of the embodiment of this new evangelical woman. She was intelligent Well informed, she was self assured, she spoke with quiet confidence with both men and women. And Elijah left his church and joined Sarah's uh, South Baptist Church congregation. By the middle and late 1820s, Elijah Pearson was at the forefront of the evangelical movement, actually. He was writing its manifestos, he was leading its crusades. And all the while, Elijah continued to have remarkable success in his business. In 1823, the couple purchased a a three story townhouse on William Street. It was uh, pretty posh. It cost $7,000, which was, Ooh. which is about 193,000 today, which doesn't sound like much for New York real estate, but to put it in perspective, they paid $7,000 at a time when land cost about $2 an acre. So
0: I wish, I wish. <laughs> mm-hmm. Could you imagine mm. if that got passed down in one generation to the next, and then it just landed in your lap?
1: That's, uh, that's, mm. that, that has, I think that's how we can trace like 40% of the wealth in this country yeah, from Homestead Act. In 1825, uh, Sarah attended prayer meetings that were led by this woman, Frances Folger. She was the wife of a Wall Street broker, and she believed the ultra-evangelical idea uh, called retrenchment. Basically, it was a rejection of all luxury. No luxury in diet, clothing, uh, furnishings, uh, whatever. Now, Frances was a firebrand. She organized women into pairs to go unannounced, into respectable people's homes and pray for their conversions, whether they were welcomed or not. And um, <laughs> which I, th- I just find objectively pu- funny. These like pairs of women sort of, you know, busting through the door, like to pray for people to convert because, because they had fancy curtains. They would be like, oh, you're living in sin. You have fancy things here. Uh, it's pretty fantastic. And of course, respectable people hated this for not just because of the intrusion but, right but also because now explicitly or implicitly they were lumping respectable people in with the kind of working class slums where it would be perfectly acceptable for middle class people to do exactly this you see to like bust into people's houses and tell them that they should be ashamed of themselves that they've made bad moral choices she's doing it to the to like the middle class you know what i mean so it's a whole it's a whole thing anyway in 1823, Francis began visiting her husband's cousin, a young, handsome hardware merchant named Benjamin Folger, and his wife Anne. Now, Anne Folger used to be Anne Disbrow. She was the daughter of one of Manhattan's old money families, and by 1825, after a few of Francis a few years of uh, Francis visiting them, Anne wore the simplest clothing, she fasted regularly, and she would host Francis's prayer meetings in her parlor while Benjamin sat somewhere else in the home soon after Sarah began attending the prayer meetings and then Elijah joined them as well so anyone who felt the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit could speak some would claim gifts of prophecy others would interpret dreams and visions others still would perform miracles like healing the sick through prayer um, all the attendees, Denied the sanctity of marriage. They believed that a chaste and celibate life was the only truly religious, uh, truly righteous, and holy path. Now, some of the more skeptical neighbors referred to this group as the Holy Club, and Elijah and Sarah attended the Holy Club for three years. In 1828, God began speaking to Elijah directly. Now, Elijah had always been prayerful, and he'd always spoken to God. But in 1828, the Holy Ghost started answering him
0: Mm -hmm.
1: in English. He started answering him in English. And Elijah wrote it all down, Uh which is kind of great. Yeah. It's not, not necessarily a a good sign. You'll see where it goes. All right. In, uh, in 1828, uh, Pearson called for the immediate conversion of all of New York city, um, which, you know, would be no small, no small task. That's for sure. Sure. I, I call for the immediate conversion of the entire city of Manhattan or the entire city of New York, rather. Uh, Okay. All right, buddy. The Jewish community would like a word, um, (laughs) you know, at, uh, I mean, I think about all the Irish Catholics who are like, "You want to do what?" Um, <laughs>
0: right?
1: <laughs> at because uh, you know, because I mean, Catholics were not very much not considered Christian, right? Uh, by the ones who called themselves Christians. So, okay, at South Baptist, he did some things that also uh, alarmed uh, some powerful people, like he denounced Sunday collections, he denounced auctioning pews as desecrations that reinforced worldly hi- hierarchies and made the poor feel unwelcome in God's house. So. His agitations caused quite a stir, and in December of 1829, the Pearsons moved to Bowery Hill. There, Francis had established something called the Retrenchment Society. They dressed only for modesty and warmth. They sold all their jewelry, their fashionable clothing. They got rid of expensive furnishings mirrors, upholstered furniture, curtains, carpets, all that stuff. They even simplified their diets, sometimes living on bread and water alone or fasting for days on end. Among the young wealthy Christians who moved to Bowery Hill were Benjamin and Ann Folger. By February of 1830, Elijah organized an independent church and he was preaching. He often fasted for multiple days at a time. His sermons were full of prophecy, visions, and other direct revelations from God. Now, all of this might seem odd But it's important to know they were consistent with the general anxiety that was felt by the kind of religious middle class that was actively trying to define what the proper standards of decency and proper standards of material comfort were, right? Like this was part of a kind of ongoing middle class project. Bowery Hill was not a place of lunatics, It was a place of respectable people who were at the cutting edge of a kind of new experimental evangelicalism. So, you know, they, they may have been out sort of on the fringes or the cutting edge. None of this was crazy. All right. So the Pearsons started teaching at a Sabbath school for prostitutes. Uh, at the women's prison in 1828. I know it's a nice transition uh, right. <laughs> uh, in 1828. Then started visiting prostitutes in their homes after they were released. So- a school uh,
0: for prostitutes?
1: A Sabbath school for prostitutes at the women's prison.
0: Gotcha. So they got locked up for prostitution. Correct. And they got sent to this school.
1: So yeah, they, so they, you know, essentially mission work. They're doing like a missionary sure. school. Sure. Yeah. And then they sort of establish these relationships. And so they start visiting prostitutes in their homes after they get out. Because again, remember for the evangelicals, this is all this idea that women are supposed to be the, the sort of moral bastions of the home. So you've got to go to the home. After they were released there in some of New York's worst neighborhoods, like Five Points- Surrounded by feces and garbage, stepping over passed-out drunks and walking around dirty children, they would listen. Uh, they would listen as women told uh, these harrowing tales of their descent into vice and sin. Most of these women were transients or vagrants who engaged in sex uh, sex work temporarily, but they very quickly learned what the middle-class do-gooders wanted to hear, and so they told them tales of abusive fathers or husbands and evil seducers. They talked about how they were plied with drugs and violated, and now their reputations were in tatters, so they had little choice but to continue. Others revealed how they were domestic servants, but they were, quote, sent into a room with some man, or rather a monster in human shape, and compelled to submit to his vile purposes, end quote. In the stories... So in these stories, the Pearsons recognize the contest between Christian love and patriarchal power right again they're they're trying to perfect the world by breaking down hierarchies. so they see this patriarchal hierarchy as as a real problem. so but I really quick, I want you to just I want to just like say if you if you just step back and think about what's going on here these uh these the prostitutes are like, okay, so they figure it out real quick. these like you know rich people come into their communities and are like, Want to help them in in some way, right? I mean, they they don't you know they don't know exactly how they they might help, but they they want to help them. So the the these prostitutes figure out really quick that these people don't want to know. I'm just, I'm not able to make rent this week. So I prostituted myself a couple of times just to get the, to, to make ends meet. And then I won't do it again for another, you know what I mean? It's not like a full-time job. I just do it. You know, things were tough this week because, you know, I had to spend extra money on this, that, or the other. So I had to make a couple extra bucks to get through. They don't want to hear that story. They want to hear these, uh, these elaborate stories of how, you know, how these innocent girls had, had their innocence stolen from them by cruel drunkards, you know, drunk fathers or husbands. And, you know, know what i mean and like malicious men that hired them to do an honest job but had no you never had an intention of like keeping them on as honest labor you know that kind of thing they wanted to hear stories of 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 being you know plied with drugs they wanted to hear stories of these poor innocents being taken advantage of as opposed to people making economic choices to try and survive right they don't want to
0: like what if they sat down and interviewed one of the girls and she was like you know what i was making more money than i've ever made in my life. I was actually kind of loving it and uh you know I'd like to go back to it. Uh that's probably not the 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 yeah, thing they were looking for. That's not going to
1: help. That's not going they nah. they're not going to help they're not going to help that person. And
0: <laughs> I know.
1: Yeah I mean uh, but that's the thing. So so like they they need the, because see that's the other thing. Uh yeah if it's if it's the story of i did it because i like it that's a whole other other thing but Hi, it's Brian here from The Editing Room. Uh, In my uh, attempt to point out that these women were making economic choices, I failed to mention that, of course, some of them were also telling the truth. uh, And in fact, both things could be true. For our purposes, though, I wanted to point out that these women were uh, adept at telling the stories that their interviewers wanted to hear. Okay, back to the story. For the women who were like, where the honest reality is they're doing it to make ends meet. It is the only way to get from, it is the only way to get from, as we would say today, paycheck to paycheck is to- survival. Is to turn a trick here or there just to make all the ends meet. Yeah. And if they were to tell that story, while people like Elijah Pearson are making money by like buying for a dollar, selling for two, um, yep. you know, because because he has access to auctions that working class people don't and things like that. So yep. he's making money because of special knowledge as opposed to any skill or, I mean, as far as they're concerned, you know, like working class people are like, wait, I I make things. Why is this guy making more than me? So anyway, if, they, if these prostitutes told the story that I'm just doing what I have to do to get through because- because my, my husband is a carpenter who suddenly is making half of what he made five years ago, despite working more hours that it might shatter their worldview that like they, and and they might recognize that they have some role or responsibility in what's going on, right? They don't Mm -hmm. want that. They want to have a solution that has to do with them being able to preach morality as opposed to having to directly impact the material circumstances that they are, you know, partially responsible for causing anyway. Elijah wrote, quote, I prayed for the harlots at five points, and the Lord said, you must go and fetch them out. Thou art one and Sarah the other, end quote. Um, sort of like Paul and Barnabas is the idea there, like you should go with, like the two of you. So Elijah knew this and that, that his and Sarah's mission was going to be to bring younger prostitutes out of the slums, to live in a Christian house of refuge, to pray with them and break the cycle of sexual violence. So they established a society. And sent, you know, basically, they establish a society down in Five Points, and then uh, they can intervene with uh, with prostitutes, and they can recommend the best candidates to move uptown to this Bowery Hill uh, residence that is established by Elijah and Sarah. The Pearsons uh, assigned a reformed prostitute named Mrs. Bolton to run the house, and there was another new resident named Isabella Van Wagenen, who was a domestic servant and the Pearsons' part-time housekeeper. And Elizabeth, I mean, I'm sorry, Isabella Van Wagenen had been talking to God since her childhood as a slave in upstate New York. Through prayer and submission, Elijah and Sarah grew ever closer, even though Sarah had kind of grown gaunt. She had sunken eyes, probably due to the constant fasting and mission work. And then she fell ill during the winter of 1829 and 30. She spent all of spring 1830 in bed, and doctors diagnosed her with consumption and malnutrition. Uh, Consumption is usually tuberculosis. OK, yeah, um, was like thrilled. pulmonary, I think pulmonary tuberculosis, if I remember. Yeah, it's not good. It's bad news. Like being sure. diagnosed with consumption is bad news, um, especially when it's coupled with malnutrition.
0: Yeah.
1: On June 20th, 1830, while riding an omnibus uh, on Wall Street, God told Elijah, thou art Elijah the Tishbite, gather unto me all the members of Israel at the foot of Mount Carmel. I have named thee this day Elijah the Tishbite and thou shalt go out before me in the spirit and power of Elias to prepare my way before me. Elijah understood his mission now. It was to prepare the way for Jesus' return. On June 23rd, he gathered Francis and Anne Folger, Isabella, and a few others. He arranged them around Sarah's bed. Sarah, now delirious with fever, was then covered in oil as Elijah read from the Epistle of James about anointing the sick with oil and the group prayed over her over and over. Elijah prayed she would be raised up. But six days later, Sarah died. Elijah announced that he was going to raise Sarah from the dead at her funeral on July 1st. So a crowd of some 200 or so people, mostly women, all showed up. Not surprisingly, really, when you say you're going to raise someone from the dead. People show up. Yeah. Sure. So once everyone was in the parlor with Sarah's coffin, Elijah entered with his open Bible. He stood by the coffin and he again read the passage from James. And then he said, quote, this dear woman has been anointed in the name of Israel's God. And I believe that God will fulfill his promise. And then he began to chant. The Lord shall raise him up. The Lord shall raise him up. Emphasizing shall over and over. After a few moments, he closed his eyes. And he prayed, and I'm going to read, this is a long prayer, but I'm going to read it because I want you to sort of get the sense. Okay. He prayed, quote, O Lord, God of Israel, thy own word declares that if the elders of the church anoint the sick and pray over him, the Lord shall raise him up. We have taken thee at thy word. We have anointed her with oil and prayed the prayer of faith. Now, Lord, we claim thy promise. God is not man that he should lie. And if this dear woman is not raised up this day, thy word will fall to the ground. Thy promise, (laughs) null and void and these gainsaying infidels will rejoice and go away triumphing in their unbelief, Lord God. Thou canst (laughs) deny thyself, canst not deny thyself. Thou knowest, we have performed the conditions to the very letter, O Lord, now fulfill thy promise. Now, O Lord, O let not thy enemies blaspheme. Show that thou hast mighty power. Thou canst raise the dead. We believe it, Lord. Come now and make good thy word. And let this assembly see that there is a God in Israel. And then he preached on and on until
0: he was exhausted. (laughs) And he preached for about about an hour. Until no one one was left standing there. No, no, no. Nobody
1: left. Nobody left. He preached a little over an hour. And he sort of exhausted, slumped into a chair. Everyone who was there, all the mourners, just kind of sat in stunned silence for a long time. Until Uh a drop of blood appeared at Sarah's nostril. Don't you tell. There were gasps in the room as several women ran to get the doctor. Everyone wanted to know if the blood meant that Sarah Pearson was returning to life. So the doctor came in and he examined Uh her and he could take no more. He explained that the blood meant that Sarah's corpse was literally rotting before their eyes.
0: No. Yeah. Ruined it, man. I was hoping (laughs) she was coming back.
1: Elijah, as if in a dream, watched his friends close her coffin He followed them to the churchyard, watched her burial. He returned home, uh, told his servant, Katie, who, like Isabella, was a former slave, to clean Sarah's bedroom, change the linens, and lay out her nightclothes. And then he sent out for her favorite foods, and he spent the night in her room, patiently waiting for her to return.
0: Oh, this guy, don't give up.
1: The next day, Elijah wrote in his journal that Sarah had appeared to Katie. She directed Katie to straighten the house, And then- she gave Katie a robe and some other items. Sarah appeared to Katie twice more, asking about the children, instructing I, Elijah to get back to his mission work and affirming that their marriage was eternal. So what do you make of uh, this appearance to Katie of all things?
0: Oh, I, he's full of shit. Hmm. Yeah, I, Katie didn't say this, right?
1: Well, that's what he, no, he, he writes in his journal that Katie told him that okay, she had so appeared to her.
0: Katie, Katie. See, I think he's creating that story.
1: Well, here's the thing. I disagree. I think the first story, I think Katie, you know, Katie has been his uh, housekeeper for a long time. She knows them. She's not part of the family, but certainly, you know, like a part of the family. Sure. And she sees him suffering and she probably thinks if I tell him that she came to me, maybe it will cheer him up. I mean, think about the messages that she sent, although the first message is the best one. Well, this listen, listen, you know, Mr. Elijah, like, you know, she came to me last night. She said, Katie, I want you to clean up the house. You know, make sure the children are taken care of. And then I want you to have my robe and some other things of mine. Please take these things of mine. You can have them. Mm-hmm. Which I think is pretty opportunistic. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> you know? right, right, right. Uh yeah. She also told me she wants me to have her robe. Yeah. And her, her. Now, now, granted, they've been living pretty austere life. So, you know, nothing's real right. fancy. You know, Katie's like prob- Katie's probably like... Yeah. Katie's like, I, I wish we still, I wish they still had a gold watch, but you know, but they're living, they're living uh, pretty austere. So um, she's like, so I guess I'll just take the robe and whatever other items I can find some value in. <laughs> and then, you know, I think then, then she appears to Katie two more times. And again, the things that she'd said, like, Sarah appears to her to ask how the children are doing and to tell Elijah to get back to his mission. She wants Katie to tell Elijah that their marriage is eternal. I mean, I think Katie's just trying to be like a good friend to some degree. And mm-hmm. I think when, you know, you're doing things like she wanted to know how the children are doing is kind of a, Hey, you, you know, you have to get out of this funk and remember you got two daughters to, to take care of. You know what I mean? Like things like that. Right. So, right. I mean, I, th- I think it's just, I mean, I think, I think the robe part is funny, but I think by and large, this is just like a, you know, you see your friend suffering and you're trying to like, okay, maybe this will get through. Right.
0: Yeah. 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 (laughs) But Uh, I do like how she took all the shit. (laughs) Yeah.
1: She also wanted me to have. (laughs) I can see
0: her. I can see her standing there looking around the room going. She definitely wanted me to have the the robe. (laughs) And (laughs) let's see here. And well. it's the weird
1: three thousand dollars. She said for some weird reason, three thousand dollars is what she told me I should
0: have. <laughs> she wants you, you to sign you, over,
1: yeah, sign over the deed to that. Right,
0: and you go out and start working, and, and yeah, continue to work hard to support every your your children and me.
1: Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, no, oh. there's a
0: it's pretty funny. Um, So. She wasn't even subtle about it, which is the funny thing.
1: Well, I mean, again, it's what do I know? For all I know, Katie is, I mean, she's sort of part of this church too. So she's, is baked in the culture as well. So, you know, there is, I mean, these are people who are seeing visions and having prophetic dreams and all of that stuff. Let me
0: ask you this in around these people around this time. Sure. Are are they doing a lot of like peyote or mushrooms or anything like this? Psychedelics? No, not,
1: not in particular. I mean, there's opium. But uh, these people are not, I mean, you know, they're really preaching temperance in all things, you know I mean? They're, you know, they won't even wear nice clothes.
0: Right. Right. They don't drink. They don't do anything.
1: They're not, you know, they're, they're kind of avoiding all that stuff. So
0: they're like, uh, they're like the dad from footloose. Correct.
1: Correct. Back to foot. Yes.
0: No dancing. No no fucking smile. Don't even smile. Don't even fucking smile.
1: (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) That is exactly correct.
0: All right. Hang on a second. We do not smile. Our people do not smile. Wipe that smile off your face.
1: So on July 4th, Jesus told Elijah, quote, if thou wilt preach my gospel, thou shalt have thy wife, end quote. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Elijah now understood that if he committed completely to his gospel labors, Jesus would return Sarah to him. In October, Jesus appeared in the flesh, laid his hands on Elijah's head. He said, receive ye the Holy Ghost, as my Father hath sent me, even so I send you. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained." Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus continued to talk directly to Elijah through December, but always focused on the promise of returning Sarah. By the end of 1830, most of Pearson's evangelical friends had abandoned him. Not, not, <laughs> not shocking, really.
0: <laughs> he should have kept a lot of this to himself. <laughs> well, What
1: I love is like, The most sort of radical Christians uh, that are his friends are like, yeah, you're going a little bit too far with Jesus talking to you, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we believe in stuff, but uh, I don't know if we believe this.
0: (laughs) We just Uh, don't believe you.
1: (laughs) Right. Um, But he was undeterred. He, He fully accepted Christ's promises, and he grew strong in his new identity, the prophet Elijah, John the Baptist, Elias he would pave the way for Jesus's second coming and reunite with Sarah so they could work wonders and perfect the world. Early in 1831, Pearson quit his business on Pearl Street. Now, at his most prominent, he was worth about $80,000, which is about two and a half million today. So in May of 1831, he left Bowery Hill and he rented a home on 4th Street with Frances Folger and her husband, Reuben. Isabella stayed on as housekeeper. Pearson resumed preaching and some familiar faces returned. Mrs. Bolton, Anne and Benjamin Folger, and Katie came back. He also gained some converts, including Sylvester Mills, a merchant who was deeply depressed since his own wife had died. Now, during this time, Elijah's only social contacts were Jesus and his congregation, who Mm -hmm. would go into the city and distribute tracts to invite people to come and hear Elijah the prophet uh, come and preach against. Pew rents to preach against Sunday collections and against preacher salaries. <laughs> so, so, again, very popular with the preacher class. <laughs> and, and so it went for a year until May 5th, 1832, when Isabella answered a knock at the door and escorted the prophet Matthias into the parlor to meet Elijah the Tishbite. And that's where we left off part one. You know, we're picking right up there. Okay. So, there we yes. are.
0: Okay. Yes, yes,
1: yes. Matthias quickly sized Elijah up as the kind of man that he he was railing against. He was a merchandiser who made money doing effeminate mock work that ruined the lives of better men. He had freely shared his God-given patriarchal authority with a woman. And when that woman died, he mourned like a little girl and he (laughs) cried. He prayed on his knees. He allowed women to speak out of turn and... (gasps) When Matthias saw Sylvester Mills, he knew he was much the same. This enraged Matthias. These frightened men were ruining the world in the last days of the Gentiles, as far as he was concerned. Matthias explained his mission to establish the father's, not the son's, kingdom of truth and to redeem the world. He explained how the father's kingdom had begun with a declaration of judgment at Argyle on June 20th, 1830. You'll remember that's when he fled with his kids... And he got arrested for interrupting a church service, remembering he was at his sister's house in Argyle. Uh Right. Okay. June 20th, 1830, that date really piqued Elijah's interest. It was the date Jesus talked to him and transformed him into Elijah the Tishbite. Now, this is a lucky break for Matthias, right? He says, oh, that date's really important to you. Interesting. So. Finally, here on Fourth Street, Matthias said he had discovered the first Jew worthy of entering his kingdom, Elijah the Tishbite, joined by the spirit of John the Baptist, and Matthias, the spirit of truth, had finally arrived after Elijah had prepared the way. For Elijah, this clarified everything. The men washed each other's feet, and then that Sunday, Elijah preached as usual, but then he turned the pulpit over to Matthias, and he never preached again. Now, there was a Mr. Sherman who rented part of Pearson's house. He ran a school there, I guess. And he saw Matthias and called him an imposter several days into all this. He saw, he said he was an imposter. He shoved him down and he pulled his beard.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like it was a fake beard.
1: <laughs> I think it's just because remember, nobody wears a beard. So I think it's just, you know, like uh, meant to be a you know, sort of, uh, you know, spitting in his eye, you know, that sort of thing.
0: Right. right, right.
1: Um, for some weird reason, uh, right after this happened, Matthias said, uh, declared he had grown tired of living on 4th Street and he moved into Sylvester Mills' house instead. He immediately took over the best rooms.
0: <laughs>
1: he Love preached that. regularly to groups of 50 or 60 people and he taught truth to a disordered world. Now, when I say truth, I am capitalizing it because that's he was the spirit of truth, capital T sure. truth. Okay,
0: right.
1: he preached in a rage, screaming about the corrupt womanish world, claiming, "quote All real men will be saved. All mock men will be damned. They who teach women are of the wicked. Their sentences depart ye wicked. I know you not. All females who lecture their husbands, the sentence is the same." Everything that has the smell of a woman will be destroyed. Woman is the cap sheaf of the abomination of desolation, full of all deviltry. All women not obedient had better become so as soon as possible and let the wicked spirit depart, end quote. His rage sermons caused neighbors to complain about the noise all summer. <laughs> Matthias cast judgment not just on women, but on all sorts of people. He had a list. All who say that Jews crucified Jesus. All who say the first day of the week is the Sabbath all who drink wine in bowls, all women who do not keep at home, all who preach to women without their husbands, all merchant tailors who hire women at four shillings a week, all merchandisers, particularly those who buy and sell land, all men who wear spectacles, all who offend John the Baptist, meaning Elijah, and so on and so on. He would just sort of go off on you know whatever it was he was mad about. Mm-hmm. There's a couple I really like, the merchant tailors who hire women at four shillings a week. If you remember last time we talked about the tailors' strike, um, you know that's that was part of why I wanted to tell that story because he rails against tailors and like about like merchant tailors who. Aren't hiring, you know, the skilled craftsmen, they're hiring women to do the work instead at, at right. lower rates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yep. cannot, for the life of me, understand all men who wear spectacles. Like, I'm not sure why wearing
0: glasses <laughs> is so
1: offensive to him. It's I, it I would was, love I
0: think it was a sign of the upper class.
1: Yeah, maybe. I mean, it could be it could be that they had just become sort of affordable for middle class people and not really for working class folks. That's entirely possible. Mm-hmm. And would actually make sense. I mean, otherwise, I, I just love that that's his. He's like, oh, yeah. And people with glasses, if you have bad eyesight, you're damned.
0: You're out. <laughs> you're, 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 right. God,
1: God says goodbye. You know. Um. Anyway, okay. So he explained that he was the spirit of truth and he could enter any body, take any shape, and had been doing so for thousands of years. His spirit had given life to all things and had given Adam the male governing spirit. When he was asked about Eve, he said she tricked Adam when he accidentally left his spirit in another part of the garden. <laughs> well, wait a minute. If, if, he, if Adam has the male governing spirit, how did he get tricked? Well, he accidentally left it. So she, yeah, caught, right. she, she right. caught him She caught him in that one moment where he didn't have it. It was, yep. it was a mistake. Yep. This This spirit had been in Abraham, in the prophets, in the apostles, and had been Jesus. After the crucifixion, he entered the apostle Matthias. But Matthias made a bargain with the female spirit, the devil. Truth abandoned the world for a time, and Christians reigned. But now truth had returned. He preached that the terrible state of things in 1832 was the result of 1,800 years of Christian misrule. Patriarchs used to teach their families, but Christians had stolen women and children from their fathers had lured them out of the home into churches and into prayer meetings, corrupting their minds, scattering truth to the wind, as the young and female learned to read, learned to pray, and learned to think for themselves, poisoning the world. But that was ending soon. Matthias was going to preach until 1836. Any who had not yet entered into the kingdom would be damned. By 1851, the Gentile world was going to burn, and the kingdom would take their rightful place away from the scorched cities in rural palaces, living in luxury surrounded by worshipful children and dutiful wives. Hmm. <laughs> so that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the promise. Follow him, and in 1851, you get to live in some sort of agrarian paradise. Uh, And he told them the seas were going to dry up in the fire and green fertile land would stretch everywhere. Every household would have an abundance, but the surplus would never go to market because there'd be no need for markets, no need for money, no buying, no selling, no wages, no domination of one father over another. Matthias would build a great temple with walls of silver and gold in Western New York. It was going to be a new Jerusalem and the ground floor was going to be a warehouse where Levite priests would re- receive all of these surpluses so that fathers could come in and trade with one another. Matthias's kingdom was not going to be this feminine ideal of retrenchment. It's going to be the opposite. It will be filled with the mythic splendors of Solomon. He spent the summer of 1832 teaching Elijah and Sylvester Mills the ways of truth. Now, Matthias had lived as a pauper, but after his arrival at 4th Street, he lived like a wealthy man. He transformed Elijah's simple meals into extravagant feasts served on uh, custom silver dinnerware. He actually had custom made decorated with the lion of Judah. He went and ordered a silver chalice just for him. Uh, and then he had the words, the kingdom is at hand inscribed on all the silverware.
0: <laughs>
1: Mills and Pearson provided him with a Landau. Uh, a Landau was like a, a convertible carriage. Um mm-hmm. Basically, this would be, you know, this is not unlike the the Rolls Royce of, of the day. I mean, it's like the fanciest yes. the fanciest carriage that you could you could have. Yes. So they provided him with a, a landau that was drawn by matched horses. So again, Ooh. you know, you have matching horses, the whole thing,
0: right? That's a two horsepower carriage.
1: Yes, it is. yes, it is.
0: <laughs>
1: matching horses because that's yes.
0: better, I guess. Yep.
1: He used this to visit uh, New York's finest drapers and tailors and uh, accumulated perhaps the the most extravagant wardrobe in the entire city. He would descend from his carriage wearing like a black leather cap, uh, a fine green military frock coat that was lined with pink or white silk, decorated with gold braid, with fancy buttons, with ruffles. Uh, He had frogs on his vest, which is a way that you close the vest, like a military style closing. Right, Right. He'd wear a silk vest with a crimson sash. He'd wear green or black pantaloons, a black cravat, Uh, and then sandals or wellington boots he wore a double-edged sword carried an iron rod to rule the world and often he had a great iron chain and key in order to lock up satan he's something uh elijah pearson's former evangelical friends were pretty appalled when they saw him uh because he's like the opposite of all the things that elijah believed in like a year ago uh, or for that matter like a couple of months ago uh and they had Kind of some growing concerns about their old friend. So, um, Matthias's pretentious wardrobe was bad enough, but they were really worried also about the physical health condition of their old friend. So, some had seen Matthias parading about, and they noticed Elijah sort of with him, quote, in constant and reverential attendance. End quote. <laughs> one old friend went to Sylvester Mills's home and saw Elijah as a bent man, quote, sitting in one corner in the most humble meek and docile attitude that can be imagined end quote the bent man had very long fingernails a scruffy inch long beard um and then other people noted that he was terrified of matthias shrinking and trembling like a leaf if if matthias was angry elijah dismissed all of their concerns because he said matthias was teaching him how to be a real man and god was speaking to him even more frequently so it's all okay (laughs) don't worry He's teaching me how to be a real man and God is talking to me way more often. It's fine.
0: What Good are you play. worried?
1: What are you worried about? Uh-huh. In June of 1832, God promised Elijah that Sarah was going to return from the dead at the proper time. And she would be a proper vessel for truth. On the second anniversary of Sarah's failed resurrection, Sarah visited Elijah for the last time. But when she did, she called him my lord. Because, you know, he's becoming a patriarch. Now, Matthias anticipated that there might be a tax on his kingdom. So when he took over Sylvester Mills's home, he quickly removed all the female relatives um, and and uh, a number of his friends that that sort of lived there and frequented there. Mm-hmm. When a Methodist girl came to the door evangelizing, Matthias told her God did not talk to girls and he whipped her. when mrs bolton argued with matthias because she was concerned for her friends he called her a devil and a lewd woman and chased her off she never returned now (laughs) sylvester mills's brother levi became concerned about matthias's expenses he seemed to be spending a lot of his brother's money (laughs) so he got a warrant for both matthias and sylvester's arrest on the charge of lunacy so he's going to send him to the asylum yep now levi and others um They still had a a weird kind of belief. They thought that maybe Matthias's power over people was sort of like Samson's power in the Bible. They thought it maybe was his unshaved beard. When Levi and the police arrived, uh, the servant, a guy named Galloway, let them in. The police ran in and they held Matthias down. They stripped him. They robbed him. They beat him and they forcibly shaved his beard. (laughs) And they arrested uh, Sylvester Mills and Matthias. Now, Mills... Was taken without incident, but Isabella Van Wagenen tried to protect Matthias, but she was mm-hmm. beaten. But she kept coming back over and over and over, trying to assist until she was finally threatened with arrest. Now, for whatever it's worth, Isabella van Wagenen was like six feet, almost six feet tall, um, uh-huh. you know, and she she was no slouch. I mean, so she's coming back to help. Like she's she's something to be coming back at it, you know. She's a she's a pretty helpful lady to have coming to help you. Sylvester was sent to a private lunatic asylum at Bloomingdale, and Matthias was sent to the Bellevue Asylum for the Insane Poor. The police were bribed to do all of this, to beat them up, to rob uh, Matthias, to shave his beard. So, you know, just standard cop shit. Um, (laughs) Taking bribes and being violent for no reason. Um, Now, the tactics backfired because now Matthias's followers viewed him as a righteous martyr. Uh, So there you go. Matthias was declared of sound mind and was released. But then he was immediately rearrested and charged with blasphemy. Matthias argued that he claimed no more than other preachers who claimed to speak for God. And the charges were immediately dropped because like they realized, yeah, like we don't want to go down this path of saying that all the preachers who claim to speak for God are all crazy or all blasphemous rather. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, Sylvester Mills remained at the asylum, which meant that his brother, his his property was going to pass to his brother uh, in the interim. So upon returning, uh, Matthias cursed Galloway, the servant for allowing the police to come into his home. And then Galloway slowly and rather agonizingly died over the next like couple months.
0: Oh, that's uh, not mysteriously.
1: Good. Yeah, so Matthias cursed it. And oh. then he died slowly over wow. the next few
0: months. Now, did he also did he curse him and then also start putting poison like in his soup?
1: <laughs> we don't know that. <laughs> okay. But what we do know is that Galloway's wife, Catherine Catherine Galloway, became a believer because, as far as she was concerned, Matthias had killed her husband because he had uh, angered
0: her. Or yeah, angered. Because he's, he's got some powers, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, for her, that's like it sort of validated all this stuff he's saying because, like, sure, yeah, okay. Matthias, of course, now needs a new home. And in October 1832, Pearson, uh, Elijah Pearson rented a house on Clarkson Street, and he gave Matthias an allowance. Matthias stayed there until April of 1833. So what, about six or seven months? He was preaching in the streets and living with Isabella as his servant. Um, But something happened that winter. His brother, George Matthews, and George's family moved in. But then one day just out of the blue they disappeared with basically all the furniture um, now before this George would had been sent to deliver hundred dollars to Matthias's wife Margaret to move the family from Albany but according to Margaret George apparently kept the money like she didn't know about the money until well after the fact but she but George did visit her He visited her and told her that Robert had died in Philadelphia (laughs) (laughs) and then kept, kept the hundred
0: bucks.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So uh, anyway, back in April of 1832. So moving, moving a year earlier again, Benjamin and Ann Folger had moved in with their three children to uh, a country estate called at the time called part place in Sing Sing village. They had a mansion house on 29 acres facing the Hudson river and Benjamin brought a, a, bought a few commercial properties there. He moved some of his business interests there. Interests. He moved Interesses. some of his business interests. His, his business mistresses. <laughs> he moved some of his business interests there from Manhattan. His hardware store would bring him back into Manhattan a lot. And when he would travel, sometimes he would bring Anne, sometimes not. But he often boarded with Elijah, who mm-hmm. by then had a, a black beard, long fingernails, and long hair. Ew. During these trips, Elijah explained his new theology to them, how Christianity had been the work of devils, that God the Father was going to set things right. Elijah warned Benjamin that Anne must not be allowed to preach and teach any longer, that Benjamin must regain control of his own house. By July of 1833, the Folgers had pretty much come to believe in the kingdom. And in in August of 1833, like one month later, the Folgers turned to their residence at Sing Sing, and they found Matthias was there and had been there for a couple of days. So they, they invited him to stay the weekend. Uh, several weeks later, he's still there. Um, and Folger and Elijah's daughter, Elizabeth, arrived at Isabella Van Wagenen's doorstep in order to receive Matthias's clothes. Now, they explained that Matthias was living at a hard place now. And two weeks later, Matthias himself comes to visit Isabella, explaining that Elijah was now living at hard place in Sing Sing as well, but he was ill and he needed help, and Isabella agreed to visit. But shortly after she visited, she had her furniture sent to Sing Sing and she moved as well. So the kingdom of Matthias is all the gangs back together. It was established in the countryside, far away from nosy neighbors, from the brutality of the police, from the prying, greedy eyes of family and friends. Heart Place was renamed Mount Zion and it became kind of the first household in Matthias' uh, prophecy of these kind of, uh, this uh, uh, rural agrarian paradise, right? They're they're up in Sing Sing Village, you know, they, they're on this, you know, 29 acre estate with a big mansion house. You know, this is the first of these, like this agrarian paradise that he's promised. So that's where we're going to end part three with the kingdom established in Sing Sing Village. And when we come back, we'll see how Matthias's kingdom turns into a sex cult that annoys everyone in Sing Sing and leads to the downfall of Matthias's vision.